Good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be going to chapter 12 today. If you don't happen to have a Bible, I'm going to have the text up on our screen here. Let's open up in prayer. Father, as we continue to worship you by looking into your scriptures, we pray that your word would have free reign in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and give us understanding so that we can actually apply it to our lives so that we may bring glory to the name <clears throat> excuse me to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Luke chapter 12 verse 13 <coughs> Excuse me, I'm fighting a little cold here. And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Prior to what we just read, Jesus had been speaking <clears throat> To multitudes of people. And he ended up casting out a demon from someone. <clears throat> In the meantime, <clears throat> wow, excuse me. <clears throat> In the meantime, the Pharisees. Let me try some more water here. Hopefully that doesn't. Okay. In the meantime, the Pharisees were there, and they were trying to demonstrate that they were far more spiritual than Jesus was. And they began judging where the source of his abilities came from. And as Jesus would address that topic, someone else would bring up a point or make a statement in order to make themselves seem like they were on this higher level on the spiritual echelon. And Jesus would yet again address those topics in a way that if someone was actually seeking the truth that, excuse me, that pertains to eternal life, that they would be able to realize what the implications of what he was saying, what it was uh, doing, and what, how they could actually come to the point to understand that they need to follow Jesus. <clears throat> but unfortunately, most of the people, they weren't really interested in the truth. And it's kind of like today, most people aren't really interested in the truth. And so they went on comparing themselves and uh, trying to impress others without even realizing that in the eyes of God, they were in fact just as guilty as everyone else. And as you read through Luke chapter 11 and chapter 12, we realize that it's all too easy to get caught off guard with uh, the cases and the cares of this world. And that we have a propensity to fall into the sin of covetousness. It's almost like we're surrounded by so much coveting that we have difficulty uh, noticing how pervasive it really is. It's like we've become nose blind, as it were, to the smell that surrounds us. You know, when I was living in Toronto, I worked for this company, and they had a lot of people from all over the globe that would come to work for them. And since they were new to Canada, I would want to get their perspective on Canada from their eyes. So I would ask them, you know, what their perspective was or what they thought really stuck out to them. 
I found that their viewpoints were quite interesting, actually quite uh, eye-opening. And, uh, you know, something we take for granted because we live here. But this one gentleman in particular really kind of struck me. He said that when he got off the plane, it's not like sour milk. And I was kind of taken aback. And he said, where I guess where he comes from, they don't have dairy in, in their diet all the time. So when he came here, he noticed the smell of milk in the air because everybody has dairy here. And it took somebody from outside of the country to let me know that we actually smell like a bunch of sour milk. I had no idea. In order for me to be able to notice that, even though I'm living here, I'm, 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 he told me about it, I still can't smell it, I would actually have to leave this country, recalibrate my nose after a while. Maybe I would actually notice it when I come back. <clears throat> and such is the case when it comes to sin. You know, we get so accustomed to it because it's all around us, and sometimes we can't quite discern what is sin. And coveting is one of those sins that can be difficult to notice unless it's out and about. You know, when it's out there, it's obvious, oh yeah, that's coveting. But as a result of it being constantly around us, we can actually become numb to the smell of coveting. Unlike us, though, Jesus can smell that sour odor from a mile away. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, as we listen to Jesus and pay attention to how he addresses all these different people with these statements, you know, and also how these people respond, we are able to notice that coveting is a sin that can disguise itself with a lot of different outfits. At times it may be obvious, but more often than not, it will be very discreet. It's so prevalent that it goes unnoticed. Think about the marketing industry. That came about because... It knows that there's power in the sin of coveting. Think of how many things we've purchased because of marketing. Remember the Ginsu knife? How many Ginsu knives were sold because they had the ability to cut through a nail, cut through a pop can, and then still cut through a ripe tomato without damaging the tomato? But honey, the person on the TV made me feel like I need it. And besides, it has this indestructible handle that you could take a hammer and it won't break. And it's guaranteed for life. When coveting, it's not limited to either rich or poor. A person's financial standing has nothing to do with coveting. We're not excluded from that sin because like every other sin, it cuts across all lines. People are coveting after people's things. People are coveting after attention, after public recognition. You realize that it's ubiquitous in nature. And regardless of what we might be coveting after, it is the symptom that needs to be traced down to its source in other, in, in, so that we can actually resolve the underlying issue. Paul himself said, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would ha- not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. You know, when we break one commandment, the result is a domino effect. And we can trace it back to its source. Because ultimately, they're all broken. You can go one by one and say, well, I haven't done this one, I haven't done that one. But eventually, you're going to get to one that's going to really pierce your heart. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. See, Paul had gone through all the commandments. He gets to the last one. That's the one that hit him. They all hit him, but he didn't realize it. And he says, I traced it back, and he realized that he even broke the first commandment 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. So he realized that the, the source of actual our problem is the sin. And it's our own sin nature by, by nature, I should say. It's our own sin by nature. And in the text of Luke 11 and 12, as you read through it, Jesus is addressing all these different types of statements and attitudes. And he began to sweep them together, as it were, down into this funnel, so that way we don't have a choice but to go along for the ride. Because we try to exclude ourselves, right? Just like Paul. Well, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. So he's forcing us into this direction so that we come to this inevitable conclusion that this sin is pervasive and it produces all manner of evil desires. In verse 13, this guy is saying, hey, look, it's not, my, it's not fair. Okay, my brother has received a lot more than I have. So he's implying that it should be even Stephen. Okay? And he's thinking he's entitled to his fair charge and he's trying to get people to see it from his perspective. Yet he's not willing to honor his own father because this would have been a, a last request of his father of how to split up everything that was supposed to be split up. And by doing so, he actually broke the fifth commandment. See, and he also, he didn't bother looking at it from his brother's perspective. Instead of noticing what he already had, he was focused on what someone else had. And his statement is actually rife with a sense of entitlement. The deal is that since he wasn't the oldest brother, he didn't receive two-thirds. See, back in the day, the eldest brother would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger sibling would have received a third. And if there was many kids, they would have shared that third. This guy was so focused on the inheritance, he didn't consider the cost and the responsibilities that actually came with the inheritance. So you see, upon the death of the father, the oldest son was given the charge of taking care of his mother. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said to John, you need to take care of my mother now. He was handing it off because Jesus was the eldest son of his family. Also, the eldest would have to take care of young siblings that were still in the home. As well, if there were servants, if there were things that needed to be managed or cared for, the eldest now had the responsibility of everything that the father had under his care. So he would now be the one to take care of everything. And as you know, taking care of stuff takes money. Meanwhile, the younger siblings, they might have a smaller portion, but there was no strings attached. Do with it what you will. And this man was comparing his smaller portion to this larger portion. And he wanted to consume it for his own self. He had actually chosen inheritance over his family. What a sad thought to choose the things of this world over your family. And you know what's sad is that people still get torn apart over this stuff today. And as Jesus was about to answer him, he directs his response to the group. So he's not just saying it to the one gentleman. He's answering the group. Over the previous series of statements and responses, it became clear that the people, they didn't realize that they were all affected by this sin, including all of us. So look again at verse 14. And he said unto him, Notice, unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And praise God that he addressed the group because, with this statement, because now we can easily understand that it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we'll never fall into the trap. You know what I mean? With that being said, 
Having things, it's not a problem with having things. The problem is with things having you. Verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. So in this parable, we're introduced to a man that's been blessed with a property that produced an abundant crop. And when he sees just how much it produced, he begins to imagine his retirement strategy. Again, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing with retirement, nothing wrong with retirement, I should say. Okay, uh, there's nothing wrong with planning ahead. There's nothing wrong with making a profit and, and retiring from a job. There's nothing wrong with that. People will sometimes misquote the Bible and say, oh, money is the root of evil. Actually, that's not correct. Money is not the root of evil. You could do a lot of good with money. You could do a lot of bad with money too. Money is just an object. It has no good or no evil. What the Bible actually says is the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. A problem with the person in this parable is that he begins to daydream about the money. The money now is getting a hold of them. And in his mind, he's already made and spent the money that he doesn't even have yet. You notice it was in his imagination. His plans were selfish. His, he, like none of it was done for the glory of God. He didn't even think that God, he didn't even thank God for blessing him in the first place. Every thought and every word was for his own pleasure in this life. He didn't even consider others. He didn't even have the foresight to think about what will happen in the afterlife. When I was re reading this, I was reminded of people that play the lottery. You know, you know it by the way they, they just, they've already spent it in their minds. When they buy a ticket, they've already spent it. They haven't even paid their dollar yet for the ticket, but they've already won and they've already spent it. They know exactly what car they're going to have, what home, where it's going to be located, They've planned out every purchase. Their thoughts are consumed with all these details and this large amount of money. And they don't even have the ticket in their hand. And they spend their time daydreaming about living at large. Just like the lottery winner, though, this man in the parable here, he's looking at how much crop was produced and he's making plans now. He's assuming that every year is going to have at least the same amount of crops. That year after year, he's going to receive it and he's going to store it and make money from it. And so he thinks, you know what? I should knock down my current barns because I'm going to need some bigger ones. He's planning ahead. But also, he's not just thinking about how he's going to have this abundance of crops. He's also thinking about what he's going to be doing with this, this cash flow that he's going to have. He's going to be able to you know, either trade or or make some money and buy ex you know, sell the extra crops. Because he says, and things. He's not just going to be storing crops. He's going to be storing things as well. His faith is misguided now. He's trusting in his own works and not in the provision of God. And he's already calculated the actual square footage needed to store all the goods that he's going to have. In order to sustain a certain lifestyle. It's not just to have it. He wants a certain lifestyle. And it's quite alarming to think of how easily we fall into the trap of thinking, uh, of not thinking things through or even asking God to give us understanding. 
God will guide our steps if we come to the Lord. Jesus said that God the Father will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. And the Holy Spirit will teach us all truth in Jesus Christ, the Bible says. As we abide in Christ, our steps will be directed by the Lord. And though we may fall, we may not be utterly cast down. You know, I've seen bumper stickers that said, He who dies with the most toys wins. This isn't me taking, I didn't take this picture, I actually saw a bumper sticker. The reality is that he who dies with the most toys, he missed the point. And he who dies with the most toys, you notice, he still dies. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, and he's talking to himself, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thy knees, eat, drink, and be merry. The Bible says that this person was rich. You know, the way we use the word rich nowadays, it's kind of exaggerated to me that, oh yeah, you need so many mansions, so many Ferraris. That's not what rich is. You know, in reality, everybody here today is rich in the eyes of someone else. Think of how blessed we are. We have a roof of our, over our heads. We have food in our stomach, clothing on our back. The Bible says that we should be content with food and clothing. But beyond that, we are rich with family, with friends, with our church family. And more importantly, we find true riches when we come to know God's love for us. There's no thing of more value than that. And the parable shows us just how quickly we can be carried away by the cares of this world, even as Christians. And this guy didn't take the time to examine the big picture. Instead, he coveted more crops, bigger barns, additional stuff, and we see that he coveted time for self-consumption. He's actually calculated how much he'll need in order to retire early to free up his time so that he could fulfill his own fleshly desires. He was planning on living large without giving any consideration to God. <clears throat> it caused him to misallocate his time. Right? When you read it, it's like, He's thinking about this world, which has detrimental consequences on his soul. But as children of God, we have a higher calling. And therefore, we need to practice good time management. I'm not great with time management, so don't come to me asking me about questions about time management. Okay? Covetousness is a thief of time. People daydreaming about the things they should have or could have. I was watching a true story about a group of people that climbed Mount Everest. Wally, please do not ever go climb Mount Everest. I'm a rock climber. Okay, okay. <laughs> These climbers were seasoned professionals, okay? It would take them about eight weeks to do the climb. I had no idea it took this long. The reason it took that long is because they need to get acclimatized at specified elevations. They gladly did this even though that they knew that every year one in ten of their fellow peers would actually die on this mountain. That's mind-blowing. One in ten. And while they were training for this, they knew that they would need to make time choices as they climbed up and down the mountain. They understood that as tempting as it may be to take a break during the final 24 hour where they climb and come down the peak, that one 24-hour period, they're going to be tempted because it's going non-stop. They're going to want to take a break. But they know that every minute they waste is going to have a detrimental effect on the end result. It can have dire consequences on oxygen, their core temperature, 
and other things. One in ten end up losing their lives in that section because they run out of time. It's all about time. These were intelligent people. But when you're at an altitude of this height, your body starts shutting down. Your mind begins playing tricks on you. They don't even realize what they're doing. They're unclipping their ropes and they're walking off a cliff. And if you prolong your time beyond what they considered a safe window, you're actually going to reach the point of no return. And I couldn't help but wonder, <clears throat> what on earth would, would cause somebody to even consider doing such a thing? Why would I want to play Russian roulette with my life? You know, the reasons are pride, <clears throat> stubbornness, and covetousness. You have families that were pleading with them, but no, I want to go do this. You know, I may not be climbing Mount Everest, but I still need to make wise choices with my time and resources because they ultimately belong to the Lord. And when I begin to get to make a series of bad decisions and if my, my uh, judgment gets very cloudy, you know, maybe it's a telltale sign that I need to climb off my mountain and get low before the Lord. And I need to ask Him to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Verse 20. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. <clears throat> this guy was looking forward to a time when his uh, barns would be full so that he could retire. And yet that day would never come. And God considered him a fool because he never took the time to actually seek the heart of God. His priority was, make as much money as I can so that I could do whatever I want to do. And in the end, it was other people that were going to actually enjoy the fruit of his labor. The Bible says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, when we consider the eternity of heaven and hell, it becomes quite evident that our souls and the souls of everyone else are actually more valuable than every rich that we can imagine on this world. But we tend to trip up and fall <clears throat> in these different traps because, you know, that's just our human nature. And we lose sight of what reality is. And those that live their lives the way the man in this parable lives will one day understand the reality of that statement. Because in the end, stuff is just stuff. <clears throat> Several years ago, there was a survey done, not by me, but I had read about this. And the question that was asked was, are you happy with the amount of money that you currently make? Most people said that if they could make about 20% more, then they would be happy. So a couple of years later, they surveyed the same people, and they were now making about 20% more. And the question was asked again, are you happy with the amount of money that you currently make? 
And guess what? Pretty much everybody said the exact same thing. If I make about 20% more, I'd be happy. Apparently, more money didn't make anyone happier. But they didn't clue into that. <clears throat> they simply got accustomed to what they already had. And then their lifestyle grew with the, uh, in conjunction with their paycheck. They had expected to find happiness once they hit a certain dollar figure, but it didn't happen. To top it off, the more money they were making, actually their debt was growing more. How does that happen? Well, it's because, like the man with the barn, they were expecting now to make a certain amount of money, and then their eye would see what other people had, and instead of working for it and buying it when they needed it, <clears throat> they would go out and buy it on credit. So now the stress of all these payments was coming about every month, and they felt it. So that joy was long gone. And they said, you know what? If I had about 20% more, I'd be happy. It's been well said that greed and worry are closely connected. Greed can never get enough. Worry is afraid it will never have enough and neither have their eyes on Jesus. On the other hand, if your eyes are on Jesus, we will have a desire to do the things that bring honor and glory to his name. We will see everything that we have in this life as if it was a gift from God. You see things differently when you realize God actually provided that for me. And it will cause us to use it for his glory. Again, like I said, having things is not a problem. Things having you is a problem. Keeping our eyes on Jesus will also affect what we believe and how we behave. See, God, God called this man a fool because he ultimately did not believe the word of God. And the evidence is in, in the behavior and in the decisions that he made. See, he wasn't ready to leave this world because he hadn't resolved the main issue in this life. And the main issue is, where am I going when I die? Here, let's move on to verse 35 here. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. That's a line that we need to have at the forefront of our minds. Some years ago, I put a note on, put uh, some, uh, some words on a sticky note to remind myself. And it says, if I knew that I was going to meet Jesus next week, what would I be doing with my time? See, the thing is with youth is we always think, oh, I'm going to live till I'm 150, right? I'm indestructible. I've met a lot of young people that have died. They didn't expect to die. They thought they were going to live. And that's the idea here is I'm not going to assume that I have 20 years in front of me. Now, before we get any uh, you know, funny ideas, I'm not saying, okay, let's quit our jobs and go on a permanent vacation right now because you know, Jesus may come next week. That's not at all what I'm saying. Okay? But it should cause us to do our current job the best that we can. We have to work as if we're working for Jesus himself. 
But also, at the end of the day, when work is done, we need to leave our work at the job site. And then, we need to be the best husband or wife and the best parent and the best neighbor that we can be. It should also cause us to think about the lost souls that don't know Jesus. Think about what would happen to them if Jesus were to come back next week. Once they go from this life into eternity, it's too late for us to reach them. So we need to pray and to look for opportunities to engage them. We need to actually share the good news of Jesus Christ with them while they have time. And if I make it to the point that the Lord actually blesses me with retirement, if I keep this sticky note in my mind, I won't be using my, t- my time for the sole purpose of eat, drink, and be merry. It's just going to be a reallocation of time. It's going to be for His use. Because ultimately, everything we have belongs to God. And He's entrusted us to use it well. I've heard of people make the comment, you know, oh, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Don't be concerned with that statement. I'd be way more concerned with the too earthly minded to be any heavenly good. You know, I've never heard of someone saying on their deathbed, man, I wish I would have put in 150 hours a week at work so that I could buy extra stuff. But I have heard of people regretting not spending enough time with loved ones. A regret for wasting so much time on the cares of this world, the things that really never mattered in the the light of eternity. I can't speak for you, but I don't want to come to the end of this life with regrets. You know, all for the sake of coveting. You see how pervasive coveting is. You know, I'm looking forward to actually seeing my Savior. Now, I wouldn't want to show up and embarrassed to finally arrive and meet Him face to face with nothing of lasting value to lay at His feet. So I need to make wise decisions with my time that I have that remains. Because as far as I know, I could be dead tonight. I could leave this world. If I am, don't be sad for me. I'm going to be having a blast. Okay? Be sad for yourselves that you can't be there. With that being said, though, I'm not going to assume that every person here has already made a decision to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. You know, I love how Dave brings it up as well. He says, you know what? I thought I was a Christian. I fall into that same boat too. You know, I have done that prayer. I had, you know, I, my, my thought was that the prayer saved me. I didn't realize that Jesus actually was the one that saved me. I still had a part in it. I thought that because I would attend church services and since I believed in God, you know, and, and, you know, and I was trying to do things to earn his favor, I thought that I was a Christian. I knew that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. I knew that he lived a perfect, sinless life. I knew that he took the sin upon the, of the world upon himself and he was nailed to the cross. I knew that he died and I believed that he rose three days later and that he was seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But I still wasn't a Christian. It wasn't until I saw my sin in the light of God's law that I understood that no matter how good I thought I was, I was still not good enough to deserve to go to heaven. See, I thought that somehow I had to earn it and that once I had it, I had to keep it. The Bible says that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when I read that, I was like, wow, all, that that means me too. I'm never going to reach the glory of God. 
So no matter how thought and well, uh, well I thought I was doing, I knew I was never going to be good enough. And the Bible says that the soul that sins will surely die and that all sinners will have their part in the lake of fire. And once I understood that God required perfection in order to make it to heaven, I realized that I was in a world of trouble. I had to come to the end of myself and I understood that unless actually God himself intervened, that I was going to make my abode in hell. And that's when someone explained to me that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually took the punishment that you deserve. And in doing so, he satisfied the death penalty that was attached to my account. That sinless died for the sinner. That the guiltless died for the guilty. And Jesus did this because he loved you and he's not willing that you should perish. All I had to do was to turn to him and ask him to save me from my sin and from hell. And he promised that the moment that you do that, that you put your faith in him, that you believe what he said, that he's going to take you off of the road to death and that he gives you eternal life and that heaven will be your home. And once you taste how sweet Jesus is, seriously, there is nothing in this world in riches that will amount to that. So let's not be like the foolish man, so focused on the things of this world. Let's make our salvation sure and let's surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And let's pray. Father, as we stand before you in awe, Lord, we marvel at your wisdom. We marvel at your love. And we ask that you would cause your word to cleanse our minds. We ask that you would renew our spirits and create within our hearts a thirst for righteousness so that we may bring glory to the most precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. of those who have the Savior, that all we have and all we are is before you, Lord. We're not to be anxious for anything, but we're to seek first the kingdom, and all these other things will be added. And we give you thanks now. Separate us with your peace in Jesus' name.